May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Last week we were discussing railway spine and the interesting parallels to our understanding of nociceptive or centralized pain syndromes like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and POTS. And that insight can help us have appreciation for many advances that we have in the present. When we look at the idea of stigma when it comes to chronic pain, we heard two weeks ago that fibromyalgia is the least prestigious illness for physicians to take care of going on for several decades now. There are many reasons. Daniel Goldberg did an essay talking about stigma and chronic pain and want to take a look at some of the insights that he has and how that can help inform us as we care for our patients who are struggling in the present. But also, if you are living with this struggle, be validated. And if you are caring for a family member or a loved one who is going through this to help offer better support for them. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Lenz, your host, author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia. I am a pediatrician, an internist, a clinical lipidologist, and a lifestyle medicine doctor who's been in practice for over 27 years. My goal is to bring the best of lifestyle medicine with the best of medical management, known as the myomedical approach, or use a biopsychosocial spiritual model to help those who are struggling with fibromyalgia and other overlapping chronic pain conditions like POTS, chronic migraines, chronic back pain, and chronic fatigue syndrome, to name a few. Remember that while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. All of the signs and symptoms that you're struggling with should be discussed with your own individual doctor. And now on to this week's episode. When we look at the Latin root of pain, it is P-O-E-N-A, poina, which means punishment. This understanding is prevalent. It goes back millennia. And we look at in the Bible in the time of Job. Job was suffering with so many losses, including family and physical possessions, but also going through significant pain and suffering himself. And his caring friends assumed he must have done something wrong. Otherwise, why would a good man be suffering? And that thought continued into the 1800s, and it some even continues into the present. It, now, some of that, quite honestly, is understood because if somebody is driving recklessly uh, under the influence of alcohol and gets in an accident where they get injured, in one sense, you could say there is a punishment or a consequence of the choices that they make. But when you're dealing with chronic pain syndromes, that situation doesn't apply. Or some people may have gotten into an accident that they may have played a role in, and they don't have continued 
pain while others do. Why is that? It doesn't seem fair. And the real struggles often are when we have what has been termed historically pain without lesion. The modern way of understanding pain without lesion would be looking at something that does not fit into the classic biomedical model. Daniel goes on to talk about the concept of mechanical objectivity. The concept grew in the early to mid-1800s. The mechanical objectivity has two central features. First, the ideal presentation features the elimination of human subjective influence over the knowledge-making process. Implied was taking out somebody's subjective complaint of their illness. The mechanical processes of nature's speaking for themselves would reveal the truth. And that means that they would be able to use their eyes in hands, stethoscope, or imaging or pathology to help explain what was going on. This framework would essentially discount the history of a patient when it did not meet the objective physical exam findings of the physician or the objective lab results or test results that were obtained. The second was having an ideal representation that maintains fidelity to the person under investigation, no matter how imperfect it may be. Another concept that he talks about is the clinical gaze. It has been said that the stethoscope is not just a listening device, but as an instrument for seeing inside the body under this rubric. The twin sons of clinical gaze are pathological anatomy and clinical correlation. Modern physician seeks to identify its morphologies that can be clinically correlated with the patient's illness complaints. These structures contain the truth of the patient's illness that's under the biomedical model for understanding and knowing what is truth. And again, medicine does great when we can identify those clear problems. Under that, the patient's illness complaints were inferior ways of knowing what was wrong with someone and their body. In 1881, an American neurologist, Dr. William Henry Hammond, noted that the fact that the patient denies the existence of a spinal tenderness should have no weight with the physician. He shared the case of a patient named Betsy, who was a young lady consulted for severe inferior mammary pain, headache, and nausea. Now, there's a lot of different causes for that. He suspected that there was spinal irritation, but she declared in answers to his inquiries that there was no sign of tenderness anywhere along the spinal column. He insisted, however, on a manual examination and, to her great surprise, found three spots that were exceedingly painful to slight pressure. It's interesting because that may be describing what we would call tender points or trigger points. In the 1800s, physicians were really looking for these pure signs that would give clear 
clinical insights. This was well into the age of Renaissance, and there was a lot of great developments in science, and they were trying to apply that to caring for patients. And the more objective you could be, that would help remove the ambiguities inherent in these symptoms. Another term for this would be pathognomonic, which is a term often used in medicine that there is a specific physical exam finding that is very specific to a disease and is very diagnostic. These are typically signs, but also sometimes symptoms. And when we look at this, there can be erythema chronica migrans, which is a rash that occurs in about 80% of those with Lyme disease. There are coplic spots with measles. There's something called Gray-Turner sign, which is a bruising in the flank area. That's a sign of chronic hemorrhagic pancreatitis. There is something called a pseudomembrane on the tonsils in the pharynx and nasal cavity that's associated with diphtheria. You can get enteric fever with rose spots in the abdomen, rice watery stools with cholera, pill rolling tremors with Parkinson's, tophi, which are these large nodules full of uric acid crystals that typically occur around the joints or in the cartilage and are pathognomonic for gout. These are also relatively rare in the common era, and I've actually only seen pictures of them in books. In the 1800s, making a diagnosis was about all you could expect most of the time. We didn't have the modern medical approaches, but there was this medical detective mindset to try to understand what was causing an illness for the patient. And that's why dealing with chronic overlapping pain conditions is stigmatized and misunderstood. If you can't find that clear sign and that clear lesion, can we really trust the patient? As Daniel Goldberg discusses in his essay, the problem posed by pain without lesion should be obvious. It defied the objectification of visual anatomical pathologies that forms the epistemic core of the clinical gaze. Epistemic means the way of knowing something being true. Among the 19th century physicians in both England and the United States, they denied the possibility that pain without lesion actually existed. There were only two kinds of pain. Pain for which these structural lesions could be apprehended and pain for which the lesions had not yet been located. They thought that was due to technical limitations related to imaging the living body. In the 1800s, there were some massive social changes going on and prompted significant anxiety. Things were no longer as they seemed and that things may not be able to be trusted. Forensic science began to take on a special social importance. Forensic science is more of a medical detective. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. During this period of time, the fiction genre exploded in popularity as the detective positioned is the forensic investigator. You can think of Arthur 
Conan Doyle, who was a physician. In the Western context of increasing anxiety about deception and corresponding efforts to discern the truth of the matter via forensic investigation of the world, pain without lesion was becoming increasingly problematic. These patients created great difficulty for, I think, some of the egos of medicine at the time, and they were extremely puzzling. And you can decide these patients don't exist and they're not real with real pathology. Before we give the medical community too hard of a time, I think that we have to pause and reflect on our thoughts as a patient. Too often, we are wanting to have that classic lesion, the classic biomedical model to explain our problems. Now, some of you may be saying, well, well, no, no, that's not me. But some of you have gone the alternative medicine route looking for some special supplement or homeopathic remedy that is going to explain the reason that you're having a problem and then go for a quick solution. And unfortunately, it may lead to a very costly approach that has the positive impact of somebody who took the time to listen to you, but not offering that good medical evidence-based approach. And some may be offered a biopsychosocial model of understanding fibromyalgia and other overlapping pain conditions and may be reluctant to accept it because it's too complicated and that there isn't one more simple unifying way of understanding it. And without looking at it from the complete biopsychosocial spiritual model, you're not going to have the proper understanding to help you on your journey to getting better. It's much more satisfying to latch on to that concrete understanding of a medical problem instead of that very complex way of understanding the fibromyalgia and overlapping syndromes. And when we look at the more classic biomedical model, we have examples like infections, looking at pneumonia, meningitis, gallbladder infections, and tumors and masses, looking back at medical history, many ways of identifying this often, unfortunately, after someone had died. When people would have these recurrent pain problems and then they would do autopsies later and weren't able to find anything that made them doubt that there could actually be anything wrong. Last week, we had discussed railway spine. The key is that legitimacy of railway spine turned on the existence of lesions that could be clinically correlated with the patient's illness complaints, which often centered on chronic, nonspecific symptoms such as pain and lethargy. The absence of such lesions was generally problematic for physicians and laypeople alike in the late Victorian and early Edwardian progressive periods. Judd actually frames the issue in terms of the familiar objective-subjective dichotomy. A person can claim to be injured in a collision of trains. No objective symptoms or signs can be discovered. Such cases can be and are based on only a few subjective symptoms, every one of which depends alone on the word of the claimant who seeks damages. Whereas the epistemic valence of mechanical objectivity depends on natural objects, in this case the lesions, 
and the removal of human influence, a vastly inferior, indeed downright untrustworthy method of knowledge production relies for its veracity primarily on the words uttered by humans to express their lived experiences. There seems little question that this skepticism about a patient's experiences of pain and suffering qualifies as stigma. Tracking Miranda Fricker's influential concept of epistemic injustice, Carol and Kidd have argued that a provider's denial of a patient's expression of pain is a form of testimonial injustice. Due to prejudice, the provider has attributed a deficit of credibility to the speaker and has denied the speaker's ability to narrate their own illness experiences. Thus, denial of the illnesses sufferers' cry of pain is a manifestation of stigma power. Delegitimizing narratives of pain is testimonial injustice. It is stigma. Moreover, insofar as frameworks of somaticism and mechanical objectivity, both privileged scientific site, novel medical imaging techniques, become important sites for analysis. In the period, no such technique even approaches the vast significance of the x-ray, a technology. So what he is saying is that if there is no corroboratory evidence that there is a mechanical problem causing your pain from a typical biomedical standpoint, then the patient's history should not be trusted. All of the episodes I've done on the importance of narrative medicine and listening is just dismissed according to this way of thinking that goes back into the 19th century. American radiologist Francis Carey Byrne and Henry Cassidy proclaimed in 1902 that one can predict positively that those mysterious railway spines and conditions of like nature will disappear under the searchlight that radiology has put into our hands. Damaged suits against manufacturers, casualty, and railway companies must have a sure basis in many particulars before the legal profession will hear such cases. From a radiology perspective, once the technology was able to catch up, they were going to be able to identify what was wrong. First, x-rays were developed, and then later, much more sophisticated testing with CT scans and MRIs. And what did they find? Well, they found that often there was no mechanical cause, or sometimes they were finding confusing results. For example, many people who have an MRI of their back will have a herniated disc or disc bulging without any symptoms of pain at all. And then there are some who have severe pain, but have no herniated disc or bulging. And some can have pain with those. How do you differentiate those who have a real radicular or mechanical cause and those that have more of a central pain cause? As with any medical diagnosis, it starts with a very careful history. When did the pain start? Where is the location of the pain? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And how long has it been going on? And if you have pain in other parts of the body, if you have pain in the lower back that goes down your leg, and then on top of that, you have some corroboratory deficits in sensation in a dermatome or section of the skin that's known to be innervated by the branches of nerve going off the spinal cord, as well as adding some weakness or differences in reflexes in that area, 
that would support a disc herniation. Doing a MRI without having that evidence or exam findings is more likely to cause a inappropriate surgery or treatment and may find some incidental findings that aren't helpful and only confuse the situation. And when the evidence to support somebody's claim of pain wasn't present, that left physicians to conclude that they probably were hypochondriacs. They were just being, as they would call it, hysterical. It isn't until the more recent paradigm in the last two decades that this thinking was incomplete, that there was another dimension to explain pain. It wasn't until the advent of the functional MRIs that over a century of patients who had gone dismissed for their complaints was finally recognized that there was a cause to their pain that they were finally validated and justified. Pain not seated in any apparent lesion was highly problematic and was much more likely to produce doubt insofar as the natural object of illness could not be represented in any scientific investigation. Railway spine is not the only example of such a problematic form of pain without lesion at the time. Historians have noted that phantom limb pain posed similar impediments for late 19th century physicians many of whom struggled to make sense of the phenomenon in the absence of material pathologies with which to correlate. Moreover, as many of the sources noted above underscore, the epistemic approach to railway spine is not limited to British context. For an especially pointed American example, consider an 1888 railway injury case decided by the Supreme Court of Wisconsin entitled Abbott v. Tolliver. In that case, the plaintiff sustained injuries after a train owned by the Wisconsin Central Railroad Company derailed between Dorchester and Stetsonville in April 1886. The parlor car in which she was riding got partially off the track, making a larch and threw the plaintiff as she was rising from her chair down on the floor in the center of the car. And while she was attempting to arise, she was thrown backwards in a sitting position. In terms of injury, her left arm and limb were numb. She was in sinking spells most of the time and was in pain all over. She suffered from pain in her spine and womb. Dr. Hosmer, who was called to attend her the night she reached home, says she complained of her womb, and he found she was sore up and down the back. He saw no black and blue spots on her body anywhere, but her spine was sensitive or tender. When he made an examination, as he did some weeks after the accident, he found a displacement and laceration of the womb. In consultation with Dr. Hosmer, a second physician named Dr. Madden examined the plaintiff. His perspective is crucial. He thought she was suffering from no organic trouble except the displacement or inflammation of the womb. He discovered no symptoms of any organic disease of the spine except the statements of the plaintiff, akin to the medical perspective in the Kildwick accident, there again we see the dominance of frameworks of somaticism and mechanical objectivity. There is no organic disease of the spine absent structural pathologies that can be clinically correlated. In the absence of these pathologies, the illnesses suffers, pain is dubious. Such doubt is a form of testimonial injustice and stigmatizes the illness sufferer. In the trial court, 
The plaintiff prevailed and the jury awarded her $7,000. As the court indicated that the defendant's negligence was undisputed, the sole question presented was whether the damages awarded was excessive. The court's analysis on this issue is remarkable. They reasoned that the medical testimony offered on her side does not satisfactorily show that she suffered any permanent injury to the spine by the fall. The defendant's expert physicians had demonstrated to the court's satisfaction that if there had been any concussion of the spine, there would be some indications of paralysis resulting from it, and none such was shown. They thought all the real pain which the plaintiff suffered was caused by the disease and laceration of the womb and all the physicians agreed that this womb difficulty was not produced by the shock or fall in the car. The physician's strategy here was not to deny the reality of spinal concussion, but instead to point out that its presence is correlated with severe and highly visible symptoms such as paralysis. It is relevant that the 19th century commentators concerned with malingering devised tests for the purpose of distinguishing between feigned and real paralysis. Moreover, the court's perspective on the plaintiff's pain is obviously gendered. Her pain is centered in her womb. There is, of course, a long history in which various theories of the womb have been used to delegitimize and invalidate women's pain. It is likely that the difference between women and men did play a role based on the suspected origin of the pain being in the womb. He went on to say, The plaintiff's unchaste status is legally irrelevant. We do not wish to intimate that an unchaste woman who is maimed and disabled by an accident on the railroad may not suffer as much pain of body or anxiety of mind as a virtuous woman who would from a like injury. But still, when it comes to a question of awarding damages, it may be that a jury would not give, perhaps, the same damages for injuries to an unchaste woman that they would allow a virtuous, intelligent, and industrious woman who could command good wages or take care of family. The court earlier explicitly mentioned that the plaintiff was a large woman, weighing about 200 pounds. Thus, the court's stigmatizing depiction of the plaintiff as a fat, unchaste woman with womb difficulty obviously portends its ultimate decision to reverse the trial court and remand for a new trial. Because stigma is inextricably reversed or linked to a social power structure, the plaintiff's membership in several marginalized groups, such as female, fat, and unchaste, contributes to her stigmatization. However, the argument is that status as a pain sufferer is similarly marginalized due to its epistemic problems. As the sources surveyed here demonstrate, pain without lesion presented specific epistemic concerns that render such complaints particularly active foci for skepticism, testimonial injustice, and corresponding stigma. Unsurprisingly, then, the court noted that even the plaintiff's physicians either deemed her to be improving or have no organic trouble of the organic nervous system, and concludes with the epistemic coup de grace. The physicians on the part of the defense were of the opinion that her pains were largely imaginary or feigned. Although the court stopped short of explicitly endorsing this position, they did not need to do so. They simply reasoned that the evidence supporting this idea of permanent spinal injury was unsatisfactory, and hence that the damages awarded was excessive. 
Although Abbott versus Tolliver is remarkable in that it shows a sitting U.S. state Supreme Court's explicit reliance on highly gendered and somaticist constructions of pain to stigmatize a pain sufferer, such a disposition is hardly isolated within American jurisprudence or on railway injury. The ultimate point is the extent to which changing epistemic frameworks of objectivity and somaticism meld with the various social anxieties of the late Victorian era to create doubt and skepticism as to pain without lesion. I do not claim that such skepticism as to pain is universal. Obviously, not all physicians doubt their patients' pain. But merely that such skepticism increases in the 19th and 20th century, at least in part because of the influence of changing ideas of truth and objectivity during this time. To wrap up this three-part series from the late 19th century to our contemporary practices, attitudes, and beliefs, Towards pain sufferers, concepts like somaticism and mechanical objectivity have played a significant role both for the understanding and treatment from the physician and medical community's perspective as well as from the patient's perspective. The link between pain diagnosis and possible relief historically has been solidified through test results, making the test results and the interpretation of those by the physician as the ultimate authority. This reliance on the visual representations of pathology extends beyond physicians and investigators. Pain sufferers themselves find solace and validation in understanding the underlying issues within their own body. However, the lack of visible lesions often leads to the internalization of societal stigma directed towards those with invisible pain. History plays a pivotal role in shaping our attitudes, practices, and beliefs towards pain and those who experience it. As we strive to improve how we treat people in pain, it is necessary to acknowledge the deep historical roots that have influenced our current behaviors. While addressing these deficiencies may seem challenging, recognizing the impact of historical context and present-day experiences is essential. The path towards a better world lies in engaging with problematic histories, understanding the complexities of contemporary pain experiences, and taking meaningful steps towards comprehensive pain management. Speaking of meaningful steps, sharing this episode with others, leaving a review and hitting the like and subscribe button will make it easier to find the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. Until next week, go Team Fibro.